0: good afternoon welcome good to see you all my name is jamie boskett i have the privilege of serving as president and ceo here at the virginia museum of history and culture and uh, i'd like to offer a few words of introduction before we begin our uh we welcome our speaker today uh first and foremost i'd like to recognize I see a lot of familiar faces, many members that are with us today. Uh, Thank you for your wonderful support. Um, It it bears repeating that while we are the oldest cultural organization in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and one of the oldest museums in the United States, and the only museum dedicated to saving and sharing the whole story of Virginia, we are not a state agency. We don't receive any, zero, government operating support. Uh, And so it is through our members, through your generosity, through your participation in the activities and the wonderful things that we do here, that this place continues to grow and to thrive. And uh, now, north of 190 years old, we are uh, are doing some wonderful work, some of the best work I think we've ever done in our history in the preservation and the education of Virginia's very long and compelling story. Uh, A few... Items that I'd like you to put on your calendar if they're not already there for some upcoming events. The first one is just around the corner on March 1st at 6 p.m. I hope that you'll gather here in the Robbins Family Forum for best-selling author and presidential historian Douglas Brinkley. You probably recognize that name. You've probably seen him on some of the uh, news media shows. Uh, He will be here presenting on his latest book, Silent Spring Revolution. John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, in The Great Environmental Awakening. Uh, Should be a really uh, interesting talk. Uh, Just a couple of weeks later on March 12th at 4 p.m., that's a Sunday, we'll welcome Pulitzer Prize winner, Stacey Schiff. Uh, She'll be speaking on her uh, very new book called The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams, one of the newest books to come out as it relates to uh, America's founding. Uh, And again, you'll note that that's on a special day and a special time. Sunday, March 12th, that weekend, is the 250th anniversary of Virginia forming its Committee of Correspondence. Uh, Again, history not often talked about, but this moment that takes place in Williamsburg at the Raleigh Tavern with Jefferson and others penning a resolution to form this communication network that for the first time creates what we would consider a national dialogue and sweeps us three years later to American independence. Uh, So this we look at as one of the first milestone moments as we at the VMHC and as part of the state commission for the 250th start uh, bringing forward programming to think about this important semi-quincentennial anniversary uh, of the United States. So uh, for anyone who is around for the bicentennial, uh, I, unfortunately, was not, so I'm really looking forward to this one. Uh, so <laughs> this will be a great way to uh, to get juices flowing and thinking about this important history. So March 12th at 4 p.m., uh, Stacy Schiff. Uh, this, we do think, will be a, a real sellout. Uh, she's not doing a whole lot of other talks uh, within the region, so uh, secure your tickets now, if you would. Uh, right after that, the following week will be a very busy week here at the VMHC because it will be the opening of our uh, newest marquee exhibition, Apollo, when we went to the moon. When people think of the history of getting to the moon, both then and now with the Artemis mission, interesting timing, right? They were talking about the history of getting to the moon while we are again going back to the moon, this time to stay for a while. Uh, and in this history, well, often associated with uh, Florida and Texas, the brains and the science of what has gotten us to the moon comes from right here in Virginia at NASA Langley. Uh, this exhibit will be one of the largest we've ever mounted, spanning more than three galleries throughout the building. You probably saw the 110th scale Saturn V rocket uh, that's out here in the lobby. That's one of the larger uh, pieces as part of the show, but there's so much more to see. That exhibit will open to the public on March 18th. But for all of you who are members, you get early access. So you should have received an invitation in the mail by now on March 15th, that Wednesday, you have two options to come for light refreshments and to be able to get a sneak preview of that new exhibit. Again, uh, stretching throughout the gallery. So uh, put those dates on your calendar. It's really gonna be a very exciting spring here with a lot of uh, new and exciting activity. Uh, Finally, in uh, just a quick note, uh, we always enjoy doing this, but following today's lecture, the Blackheath Meadery, Virginia's first urban meadery, will be in the museum cafe, sampling some of their delicious meads as part of our ongoing cafe series with Virginia makers and producers, something we're really proud to do. Uh, we hope that you'll stop in for a quick taste uh, and to hear more about their mission to support Virginia beekeepers and get this taste of a recreation of one of the world's oldest fermented beverages right here in the museum. So that'll be a nice little uh, sweet uh, a, a takeaway after today's, um, after today's lecture. Okay, now turning to our program. Nearly 60,000 free black people lived in Virginia in 1860, uh, the largest total for any state in the South. Uh, free black people lived in a, what you could consider a legal no-man's land. They were not slaves, yet by no means free citizens. They built lives of pride and achievement through those surrounded by the inhumanity of slavery, which was ever-present in Virginia and beyond. Uh, This is a story, this piece of this larger story has been largely overlooked, and that's a need that that we are currently looking looking into here at the VMHC, and we're going to address through an ongoing collaboration that's underway right now. This is an ongoing research effort with Virginia universities, including our wonderful HBCUs and others like William & Mary uh, that are leaning into collectively supporting a body of research that will manifest into a new special exhibit here in the museum about uh, Virginia's free black people uh, opening in 2025. So it it takes a long road to to have this team of experts rally around a narrative for this exhibit uh, and bring forward uh, fresh research a lot of which will be drawn off the archives here in the museum. So uh, keep that in mind. And it, of course, directly ties to today's topic. Uh, One of these neglected stories among this larger body is that of the Maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp, people who emancipated themselves from enslavement and settled beyond the reach of enslavers in order to establish new lives of freedom in a landscape deemed worthless and and inaccessible to most. Jay Brett Morse is Professor of History at Clemson University. Previously, Dr. Morse served as Professor of Humanities, uh, Professor and Humanities Department Chair at the University of South Carolina, and the Founding Director of the USCB Institute for the Study of Reconstruction Era. He is an award-winning author of several books, and today his, his talk will, of course, focus on his most recent work, Dismal Freedom, A History of the Maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp, Thank you all for being here, and uh, please join me in a warm welcome for Brent Morse. Thank
1: you for that great introduction. Um, And there's so much exciting stuff coming up at the museum. I can't wait to get back here and and see what what evolves from it. But um, I am here today to talk about my recent book, "Dismal, Dismal Freedom, A History of the Maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp. And this is a three-century history of thousands of men, women, and children who emancipated themselves from enslavement and then established lives of freedom for themselves um, in one of the most foreboding landscapes in all of America. They certainly didn't find easy lives in the Great Dismal Swamp, but these were lives always understood to be preferable to one more day spent enslaved. And it may really be the most amazing story I think I'll ever have a chance to tell. Um, two decades. It took me to to uncover the story. I started and stopped several different times when I became so discouraged by not being able to get actually into the sources, be able to to tease out the the tiny bits of evidence that existed out there. Uh, I went off to grad school fully intending to write a dissertation on the maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp. And um, it didn't take me long to realize that it was going to take a very long time to develop the skills necessary um, to find people who didn't want to be found. They were incredibly good at staying below the radar. Uh, it wasn't just a raging case of imposter syndrome either when I went off to grad school. That was there, of course. Um, but other people throughout history had, fu- had tried to find the Great Dismal Swamp Maroons and had very little success themselves. There was an abolitionist named Edmund Jackson, and he published one of the very rare accounts of the Dismal Swamp Maroons in 1852. Um, and he said, though, he believes the swamp to be, quote, a city of refuge in the midst of slavery and a home to a large colony of Negroes who originally obtained their freedom by the grace of God and their own determined energy. He couldn't really say much more than that. He did conclude, though, that how long this colony has existed, what is its amount of population, what portion of the colonists are now fugitives, and what the descendants are of uh, fugitives are questions not easily determined. Reliable information about the Great Dismal Swamp and its maroon inhabitants was nearly impossible to come to by outsiders. Jackson wasn't in the know, and those that were in the know um, closely guarded the secrets that they held um, very close to the chest. Four years after Jackson wrote about the swamp, there was a journalist named David Hunter Strother. Uh, He went on assignment to the Dismal for Harper's Monthly with the specific hope of glimpsing one of these legendary fugitives. One day he went out into the swamp by himself, um, and he did stumble upon a very fierce-looking and legendary maroon leader named Osman. Uh, Strother's curiosities were quickly replaced by the terror of being himself discovered by the well-armed, notorious man known as, quote, the protector of fugitive slaves. He wasn't discovered, however. Seconds seemed like an eternity, though, and he could only shake off his paralysis once the man he titled the Sable Outlaw had disappeared back into the swamp. All Strother took away from his experience was adrenaline <laughs> and the image of Osman seared into his memory, from which he made a very quick sketch afterwards. And when he got back to the camp, he couldn't extract more intelligent than this man's first name from two enslaved men. Um, both clearly knew much more than they let on, but they also seemed terrified to have given away even that little information, little bit of information to an outsider. You see, to the swamp's inhabitants, Secrecy and complete scission from the outside world was the point. Maroons, these are men and women who freed themselves from enslavement and formed independent communities. They set out to remain undetected, out of sight, and concealed as much as possible, and they were remarkably successful in this goal. The immense swamp, too, guarded their secrets. The Great Dismal Swamp extends north and south 50 miles inland from the Atlantic on both sides of the Virginia-North Carolina border and originally covered a territory of about 2,000 square miles, roughly the size of the state of Delaware. As colonial maps of Virginia-North Carolina tidewater region filled up from the early 17th century, the Dismal Swamp, or the desert as it was actually sometimes called, it remained an enormous, dark, and daunting blank space on these maps. The swamp has always been a tangled web of confusion to any outsider who enters. Deep stagnant pools of water, islands higher than high, and higher ground here and there, slow-flowing waterways towering, white pines, cypress, juniper, gum trees, briars, bushes, vines, reeds so thick you can barely push through them, um, mud, my goodness, the mud. <laughs> it's not to mention the wildlife, though. Clouds of bloodthirsty insects, black bears, alligators, several varieties of poisonous snakes, feral cattle and hogs, and the occasional wolf and bobcat roamed both bogs and dry patches throughout the swamp. And I'll tell you from spending some time in the swamp, it's the um, the yellow flies, the biting flies that come out in June that are the worst, worse than any snake or bear that I encountered in the swamp. Um, but very few white people of the colonial and and plantation country had any reason whatsoever to approach the dismal swamp or to pay much attention to its existence. That is, other than the fact that it served as a magnet for their enslaved people. For those who slaved on labor camps nearby and even hundreds of miles away, refuge beckoned within the swamp's depths. The dangers of the dismal hardly seem like an appealing setting to build a life, but for some, the worst day of what I call dismal freedom was better than the best day enslaved Marinage, or the process of becoming a maroon, it occurred to some degree wherever and whenever slavery existed in the Western Hemisphere. It was, in the words of one scholar, the most pervasive form of fugitive slave community formation, negotiation, and enslaver accommodation in the history of the Atlantic world. It was also one of the most dynamic and impactful ways enslaved people resisted their bondage. Though ever-present in the Americas, Marinage varied significantly over time and space, and scholars have spilled a great deal of ink attempting to define Marinage using its um, factors in different cases, the length of time a person stayed away from the slave labor camp, manifestations of class struggle, intentions to remain away permanently, individual versus uh, group Marinage, degrees of removal from the capitalist mode of production, geographic proximity to slave labor camps and plantations, among others. But I argue that the concept of maroonage should be applied to, the, applied to the entire process of self-emancipation. It extends through the whole of their fugitive experiences, from the first acts of escape from bondage, through their self-earned extralegal freedom, whether that entails a permanent settlement as part of a community or a much more transient life. A maroon, then, is someone who has self-emancipated themselves from enslavement or is born outside of um, enslavement to maroon parents and lives in defiance of the laws of the enslavers that would limit their freedom. A person could maroon for a day. A person could maroon for a lifetime. They could be alone or in a village, uh, achieve permanent freedom, or be re-enslaved. They could settle into a life in the wilderness, take up arms against their oppressor. They could set their sights on the nearby plantation country for revenge, plunder, or liberation. And the Dismal Swamp Maroons did all of these things. But the result was always the same. The result or their end goal was always freedom. Now, freedom, even in the Great Dismal Swamp, was many things. And, by, and from the title of the book to the final pages of it, I attempt to complicate just what we mean and what we understand by the word freedom. Maroons risked their lives to escape and then purposefully chose a life of exile in the swamp over attempting to continue northward. Freedom was never limited to free states above the Mason-Dixon line or even Canada. And dismal freedom was not necessarily a second-best option and escape. Very often it was a goal in and of itself that in many ways offered greater independence than if one reached a northern terminus of the much mythologized underground railroad. Outsiders described the swamp as impenetrable and unlivable, but maroons knew otherwise. In the swamp, they took control of their own lives and destinies. They married... They had children in the swamp and formed families away from the control and ownership of white enslavers. They maintained a cultural life beyond the supervision of whites. They cultivated garden plots. They raised livestock, built and lived in permanent and substantial structures, uh, miles into the swamp. And they freely traded goods and services over a territory of thousands of miles. Some people were born, lived and died in the great dismal swamp without ever knowing another home, without ever seeing a white face. Others stayed for years before leaving the swamp following the Civil War. That they did so in less than ideal circumstances and with less flexibility to do exactly as they pleased only places them somewhere on a very broad continuum of freedom and unfreedom in the Antebellum South, any point on which people could thrive relative to their circumstances. And thrive they did. From the 17th century through the Civil War, thousands of Maroons escaped to the swamp where they established dozens of permanent communities. There they lived and died in the midst of the Tidewater Slave Society, the largest in North America. The way these communities functioned varied very much depending upon when and where a given community formed and what motivations individuals and groups had for for marooning. And I detail several types of this in the fourth chapter of the book. But together, these communities established an extraordinary and historically significant world within the dismal. And despite the remarkable lives of maroons um, in the swamp, their experiences went under recorded in the documentary record. Now, this, of course, was by design. Dismal swamp maroons were highly successful in concealing themselves, but their flight into the swamp well beyond the gaze or reach of outsiders has continued to be much more successful in hiding them than they ever would have imagined. Uh, The very few sources that they left have seldom um, attracted the sustained attention of historians. They only hint at a story that's very intimidating in the silences that a researcher encounters, Uh, mostly undocumented and seemingly irretrievable. But I knew even before I could really do it myself that this history had to be recovered. We know from the study of hemispheric marinage that the phenomenon was very, the very antithesis of what whites asserted to be the bedrock of pro-slavery ideology. And that was essentially that people of African descent <clears throat> were incapable of surviving without the beneficent oversight of white people. It was that they truly didn't ever desire to be free, that slavery in some way was a favor done to them, that they were in every way inferior to whites. Maroons, however, were an obvious weakness in the slave system and they couldn't be hidden. There was one that directly challenged white authority and white supremacy. North American Maroons just left a very thin paper trail. Um, Maroons in other places, Mexico, Brazil, Jamaica, um, entered into negotiations with colonial authorities, left a much stronger paper trail. There's a lot more scholarship that deals with them. Uh, But in North America, the opposite is the case. Very few historians have taken up the challenge of uncovering the histories of Marinage in the British North American colonies or the United States. Um, And I'm happy to talk about different historians that have taken different approaches to this story later on. Um, But it's important to know that, that my book, Dismal Freedom, is really the first and only comprehensive history of the maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp, which was the largest and most important group of maroons in all of North America. And it took two decades of digging in the documentary source material to really find the maroons and to hear their voices. And it also took two decades of literally digging in the swamp itself along my colleagues in the Great Dismal Swamp Landscape Study. Uh, this is an archaeology-focused research group that has been funded by the NEH and other organizations, uh, which was convened to recover interpretable archaeological information about pre-Civil War swamp communities that existed within the current bounds of the Great Dismal Swamp National Wildlife Refuge. Um, the Great Dismal Swamp Landscape Study undertook archaeological fieldwork in 2003 through 2006, and then most recently, 09 to 13. And this represents the first and only extensive archaeological research to ever take place in the refuge or even within the historical boundaries of the Great Dismal Swamp. Uh, To date, the research group has generated one of the largest archaeological and historical data sets on the marginalized communities in North America, including the most detailed and expansive body of materials related to maroon communities currently available in North America. Um, The archaeological field work, which I only played a small role in in helping out one summer, Um, my own documentary uh, research, and the utilization of new technology, which is actually fascinating, and geophysics, ground penetrating radar, electrosensitivity, LIDAR imaging, all of these things have conclusively demonstrated the existence of maroon communities and settlements throughout the swamp. Um, Just getting to that conclusion was a struggle, but it was a huge conclusion that we were able to make because up until that point, people just didn't believe that the swamp could have sustained such large numbers of people, that the the stories of the maroons must have been legends. Um, As a historian, I was doing documentary research, and what the archaeology allowed me to do was to fill huge gaps in my documentary sources. Um, Up until this point, no other historian has incorporated or had access to the archaeological record of the Dismal Swamp Maroons. Um, And really, only through a very interdisciplinary approach could this fascinating story ever be told. Um, And importantly, I think, told through the voices of the Maroons who actually lived in the swamp. The voices of the people. I mean, this is what every historian, when they're writing a book or an article or anything, tries to get down to. I try to have my voice in the telling of the story, but I really want the conveyance of that narrative to be in the voices of those that lived this history. Um, And scholars have very seldom listened for those voices. It's a lot of work. It's hard work to sort of hear those voices and the the loudness of other sources. Most of the sources dealing with the Dismal Swamp Maroons have nothing to do with the people that actually live the history. They're written by folks outside the swamp looking in. Um, But Maroon voices were very often deafening in the American South. The Maroon voices were deafening in the American South. The fact that they existed was paralyzing to people outside of the swamp. Um, especially in and around the dismal. And though it would have surprised previous generations of scholars, um, it's the voices of Maroons that are able to carry most of the arguments of this book. Maroons collectively register one of the most thunderous indictments of slavery to be heard, and the echoes chafed at the ideological bases on which enslavers relied to justify owning human beings. Marinage. And the possibility of marinage, and again, all enslaved people were potential Maroons, it just blew up the hegemony of slaver power and replaced it with an unspoken and smoldering charge of impotence to control people who, according to their own ideology, should have been incapable of independent thought. They were undesiring of freedom. It's not what Maroons were saying. Maroon voices also demand a reassessment of the meaning of freedom itself. Marinage in the Dismal represented an alternative to a life of enslavement. It also represented, in many cases, a choice to live free lives in the swamp in the South rather than seeking it in a free state or Canada. Maroon Voices also remind us that freedom was not just an accomplishment after passage along the Underground Railroad, but it was a marinage process that was sustained by their own heroic efforts. Dizzle Swamp Maroons also relentlessly resisted enslavement and the brutalities of slavery through a method, their marinage, that at once shook cracks into the bedrock of the institution while not usually having as its goal its overthrow. And as their lives and voices make clear, freedom was their primary objective, and all that was part of their marinage, including their initial escape, helping themselves to the resources of slave labor camps, seeking to disappear the dismal, working alongside enslaved canal workers, and yeah, sometimes even rebellion. All of those responses to enslavement landed somewhere on this broad uh, continuum of resistance. There are some scholars who have dismissed the impact of North American marinage because these Maroons didn't generally wage a constant and outright warfare against their enslavers, as did some Maroons in other locales. But resistance didn't necessarily have to have revolution or even a direct critique of the slave system as its goal. In the Dismal Swamp, even when Maroons didn't directly violently attack their enslavers or rise up in rebellion, their very existence and total defiance of their enslavers maintained the constant potential for such action. And the impact of Dismal Swamp Maroons' resistance was thus cumulatively overwhelming, if not ever directly catastrophic. Now, talking more about voices. <clears throat> The hostile voices from outside the swamp very often refer to Maroons as lurkers, as villains, as rogues, as runaway, as fugitives, wild men, bandits. They didn't recognize the Maroons' desire for an achievement of freedom as legitimate. And so what they did was they denigrated it and they defined self-emancipators in the insulting terms of their own laws and customs. Maroon voices, however, asserted their dignity and humanity, and they didn't recognize enslavers' authority and laws and ethics. They were no longer slaves. They were not afraid. And in their world, in the swamp, they were just about as free as any other American. Maroons named themselves, as did the remarkable Jack Dismal. They fully came of age as men and women through their Marin as did the very brave John Nichols in the Civil War. The first self-governing African-American communities, north or south, Included amongst them, the great dismal swamp maroon communities. So this is a story that tells us a lot about slavery, about resistance to slavery, um, about the coming of the Civil War, about the ideological history of the United States leading up to that Civil War. But it's also something that tells us a lot about the, the indomitable human spirit and the links that people would go to to remove themselves from enslavement and to live a life of their own choosing of freedom. So quickly, I have a little bit of time left before I open it up to questions, which is always the, the fun part of a talk. Um, I do want to walk you through sort of the, the main points of the book. And I'll end it on this image, which is uh, Dismal Swamp Slave Hunt. It was um, an 1862 painting by Thomas Moran, uh, and I just saw a version of it in, um, in the museum just a bit ago, a miniature that he painted. Um, the, the full version, the large scale, is in Oklahoma, but um, really captures and represents in, in a very um, very compelling way the experience of maroons. These couple down here escaping from their enslavement, you've got two dogs sort of in the middle, hot on their trail. <clears throat> it's a bit exaggerated, obviously written, uh, painted by a white painter without that much firsthand knowledge of the swamp itself, um, but I thought it made a, a striking cover to the book, so it's what I suggested to University of North Carolina Press. But anyway, the book itself... I start out by sketching the natural history of the Great Dismal Swamp, and I set the scene for the dynamic human history to follow. The first chapter looks at the little-known history of the earliest European settlements in the area that would become North Carolina at the southern edge of the swamp. Um, And there, a handful of traders, fugitives from indentured servitude, enslavement, poverty, debt, or the law, um, as well as religious dissenters made their way south from Virginia as early as the 1640s and the area became a sanctuary for the renegades of Chesapeake society. The settlers established a society outside of the control of colonial authorities that fostered independence and nonconformity. They valued widespread political participation, held decidedly progressive racial views, and opposed all hints of hierarchy. They were ultimately unable to preserve their independence beyond the Kerry rebellion of the early 1700s, 1708 to 1711, and they fell under the control of the elite Anglican establishment. But sources do suggest that others, likely those of mixed heritage or of African descent, entered into a new life in the Great Dismal Swamp. And that's where Chapter 2 begins. It follows the development of the Dismal Swamp Maroons through the colonial era. In this period early of early Maroon occupation, even though the numbers were few and their organization was likely very limited, there was the beginnings of a, a process, a program, a strategic aggression that originated in the Swamp and directed itself outside against the outside society that had oppressed them. Maroon activity increased significantly in the years leading up to 1720, as refugees from the Tuscarora war entered the swamp from the south and Africans who were steadily increasing in number in the Virginia tobacco country fled there from the north. And the late 18th and early 19th century comprised a new era of armed campaigns originating in and around the dismal swamp and striking out at the surrounding slave society. There were certainly no maroon wars in North America on par with those of the Caribbean. Um, Chapter three does make the argument that altogether, the aggregate of guerrilla raids from within the swamp maroons involvement in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and connections to and participation in later slave rebellions. It represents within the context of North American slave resistance and rebellion, probably the closest comparable phenomenon in North America. Now, admittedly, these were very often small groups, but the raids were chronic. They weren't just episodic. And the evidence suggests that some of these raids were often part of something much larger, of plans and collaborations over a large area and among different groups of Maroons and enslaved and marginalized people. And although the potentially cataclysmic nature of the Maroon threat was constant, if not necessarily potentially cataclysmic, although importantly, it may have seemed (laughs) that way to people at times, it was altogether real. Maroon guerrilla activity certainly resulted in greater property loss uh, than the Nat Turner Rebellion or the Thor gabriel Rebellion as well. Maroons were not simply provisioning themselves for raids, though. Most maroons had once been valuable enslaved property, and the process of their marooning had been, at least from a white perspective, uh, the act of stealing themselves from their owner. An estimate from the 1850s suggests that the maroons of the Dismal Swamp represented about $1.5 million worth of slave property, now, that might have been a little bit high for any given time, but it was actually quite low if you consider from the perspective of 200 years that the dismal swamp served as a beacon for maroons. Maroons themselves had their primary goal to remain undetected. And like I said, they were incredibly successful at this. Um, but the fourth chapter looks very closely at the lives that the maroons lived. It's my favorite chapter. I loved writing it. Um, It reconstructs a partial portrait of their lives from the evidence uh, provided by contemporary documents, oral history, um, and, of course, the recent archaeological discoveries. Maroons established distinct settlements across the vast, dismal swamp, and it reflected the residents' diverse motivations for marooning. Um, Recent digs in the swamp have uncovered evidence of maroon structures, as well as demonstration of cultural features across several dry islands in the swamp. Uh, Satellite images indicate that large islands greater than 20 acres total and smaller clusters of islands, 50 um, or more acres in the aggregate, exist across the swamp. Very easily could have been conducive to larger scale settlement. Um, Islands that have been surveyed by the Great Dismal Swamp landscape um, study represent about 1% of the Great Dismal Swamp uh, wildlife refuge acreage. So, and they range from 1 to 39 acres and are often found in clusters with as little as 50 feet of swamp separating them. Some are as high as 10 feet above swamp level. Um, The final three decades of dismal swamp marinage through the end of the Civil War from this swamp represented escalations of previous eras of confrontation. Um, The fifth chapter recounts this growth and the experience of a very new generation of Maroon leaders in guerrilla warfare and their increasing notoriety in American popular culture, which had already begun to strike at the very foundation of the Tidewater Slave Society by the time many Maroons left to join the Union forces in dealing a final blow to slavery in the Civil War. It was also during this last antebellum decade that all of this, the accumulated intellectual burden of more than two centuries of Dismal Swamp Marinage became unbearable for white supporters of slavery in the Tidewater and beyond. Despite the apparent decrease of maroon activity from the swamp after 1831, the year of the Nat Turner Rebellion, the symbolic shadow of the Great Dismal Swamp, um, it grew over the swamp and over the south. Ultimately, the Great Dismal Swamp, by virtue of their very existence and resilience, drove a nail into the coffin of North American slavery. When the war ended, the Great Dismal Swamp maroons quietly emerged from the swamp and then disappeared again this time into the bustle of a world where slavery no longer existed. Now they traded one set of dangers for another, traded bears and rattlesnakes on the one hand, which were no longer a constant threat to their safety. Um, But many now former Maroons were a bit skittish on the outside after many years or even a lifetime in exile. They would have to wrestle with the ambiguous meanings of freedom, their place in Reconstruction governments, and then later a Jim Crow world that led some former Maroons back into the only secure and safe place they had ever known, the Great Dismal Swamp. Some, before their return to the swamp, told their stories of dismal freedom. Um, one character that I encountered that I really loved writing about was a man named Long Davy Custom. And Long Davy was one old Maroon who sat down with an interested writer um, who had been fascinating, this is in the 1880s, but fascinated by the legends of Marinage and the Swamp. And he asked Long Daisy about his, long about his experiences living there. And Davy prepared his listener for a very long story. He said, boss, you ask me hard questions. I tell you, boss, when you get in the desert, the dismal, if nobody sees nothing, the runaway catchers can't catch you. Davy's invitation to his amazing st- tale still echoes over a century later as an appropriate introduction to my book that tells his story and that of thousands of others with whom he shared the swamp. Maybe say, get off your horse and sit down. I'm going to tell you something important. Um, and the story of the Dismal Swamp Maroons, I think, is, is very important. And um, I could talk about this for days and days and days, but I think we have an hour. So hopefully there's enough time for questions. So I thank you for the invitation to speak. I thank you for your attention. And I welcome questions. Thank you. And we do have a microphone. So if you'd like to ask a question, just raise your hand and I'll... Bring it over to you. Uh, during the early parts of the Dismal Swamp, how much mingling was there with the indigenous people? Um, there's a great deal. And and probably the success of people of African descent in the swamp would not have been possible but for the the experience in the swamp of Native Americans first. Um, for an indigenous folklore, I mean, this the swamp was... A territory that was utilized by these groups back to time immemorial. Um, it had its significance as a hunting ground, as uh, as a religious sort of a holy place in certain cases, probably. Um, and Native Americans didn't need to actually live in the Dismal until they were pushed there by European encroachments. Um, but some did, and I think the the early stages of of figuring out how in the world to live and to make a life in the swamp those secrets were figured out by Native Americans who then conveyed the secrets to the African-Americans and and, white debtors and fugitives from justice. I mean, it was really a a sort of this very multiracial cosmopolitan group of people that lived in the swamp, at least in the the late 1600s, early 1700s. But um, the archeology span too speaks to this really in interesting ways. Um, There were instances of what clearly were dismal swamp maroons mining the swamp for Native American artifacts. And um, they would find these artifacts and and retool and repurpose them into something that they could use. So they might find an arrowhead and sharpen one side and use it for a scraper for leather or something like that. Um, Tools were hard to come by in the dismal swamp and you took what was there. And one of the most valuable resources for dismal swamp maroons in the 1800s were artifacts that had been lost or discarded by Native Americans thousands of years, sometimes before. Um, And there was probably some, you know, intellectual connection there, too. There was the the understanding that the tools that make my life possible were left here by other people who are also finding themselves on the wrong side of this society, who we share certain, you know, certain life experiences with. There were actually instances where uh, Dismal Swamp Maroons built their house, um, built their houses in the swamp and shored up the structure with pieces of Native American pottery possibly just, you know, for structural reasons, but also possibly symbolic as well, to make sure that that Native American history was incorporated into their lives as well. I understand from some of the uh, experiences there
0: that that some of the white people wanted to drain the swamps. Was the fact that there were these maroons living there have anything, (laughs) an influence on the
1: that uh, proposition it it sort of it did and um some of these white people that wanted to drain the swamp i just saw peering down at me as i walked through the museum before the talk um william bird the second um and then later on george washington uh they had proposals to drain the swamp very ambitious men um and when it came to when it came to fighting the british george washington was successful Uh, when it came to fighting the great dismal swamp he was an abject failure Um, but he was, he was a partner in the, um, the Dismal Swamp. It it was the long original title of their group was Adventurers to Drain the Dismal Swamp. And, um, Washington wanted to, to drain the swamp, to turn it over into agriculture. Um, eventually he had dreams of cutting a canal through the swamp, which, which eventually happens, but, um, the greatest extent that he could come to having a canal was, um, from the, the western edge of the swamp to Lake Drummond, which is now called Washington Ditch. It gives you a sense of just how grand that canal was. Um, but yeah, they had, they had plans. Um, the, uh, the Dismal Swamp Company um, brought in enslaved people to do most of the work, do most of the digging, which was some of the, the worst work that you could have tasked upon you as an enslaved person. Um, and the swamp just, it was indomitable. I mean, the swamp fights back, fought back at least um, and they were never able to, to bring to fruition their plans for the Great Dismal Swamp. I mean, it, it's, it's still there. <laughs> um, it's, most of it's been preserved now. But, I mean, it's well before people started thinking about the swamp in terms of preservation. It was still this, this blight on the landscape that nobody could, could bring to bear. They could not tame it. Um, and the, the maroons were there. They were, um, William Byrd refers to maroons a couple of times in his narrative of, um, of surveying the, the boundary between North Carolina and Virginia. Um, now, Bird, of course, never actually went through the swamp himself. He had his surveyors cut the line through while he you know, hung out with some of his friends on the outside. But definitely took credit for it and, and wrote. He hated North Carolinians too. Um, always wrote about North Carolinians in a very insulting way. But um, on the North Carolina side is where you run into these fugitives. He said, you know, and um, he early on understood that North Carolina's um, policies of, in a, lot, in a lot of ways, sort of welcoming fugitives from justice, whatever race or ethnicity they might be with open arms was a problem. And not just because it it made it hard for Virginians to collect on debts or to keep their enslaved people in the field. But he said, you know, Rome was also founded by fugitive slaves. And if you don't watch out, you're going to have an empire like Rome rising up in your own backyard. Um, And that in a lot of ways was what people were afraid of. I think this was swamp. It wasn't there was never a case where the dismal swamp maroons were able to come together and, and leave the swamp as like a big army of liberation to bring down slavery. But white people didn't know that. <laughs> they didn't know exactly what the communication networks were, what the extent of organization might have been. And it's, it's remarkable when you, when you read um, outside descriptions of the swamp, when they're talking in terms of the, the human residents of the swamp. They always describe the situation in terms of like a natural disaster of an earthquake waiting to happen or a volcano that's that's building up pressure and about to blow. These these cataclysmic events that, you know, in in the minds of North Carolinians and Virginians, a large scale slave rebellion was the same as a volcano going off in their backyard. Um, So the you know, the, the early attempts to actually get into the swamp, they were very much aware that the Maroons were there. Uh, It didn't concern them too much, but it didn't really play into what happens much either because they just were so unsuccessful that they didn't have to encounter too many Maroons. Were the communities within the swamp connected? Did they um, join together for strength at all? They, they did. Um, it's hard to, there's so much in the swamp that I would love to know that I know happened, but I can't really put my finger on it and, and say with any certainty that, yes, this happened. But the connections between different communities certainly existed. Um, there are, there's evidence of, from time to time, slave rebellions being planned. Um, and the planning happens on both sides of the dismal in North Carolina and the Virginia side. And the only way that that could have been possible was through the swamp. And the only way through the swamp is through with people who are in the know, who actually know the way through the swamp and importantly would be allowed to pass through the swamp without you know, being captured by maroons who were always, they had sentinels posted at different points in the swamp. They always were on the lookout for incursions. So the fact that there were these sometimes large scale operations that were planned in ways that could have only been done through communication over and through the swamp, it it, it does make me you know, think that there was certainly some sort of communication network. Um, you also see in the archaeology, you see um, in the material culture that's, that's brought out of the ground in these different communities, um, you can actually trace this um, through the different types of glass that show up in the ground at dismal swamp sites. Um, there are some sites that have high deposits of certain colors of glass and others that have low, but you can actually, if those that know it, you know, the archeologists who are really good at this can actually figure out, you know, where certain pieces of glass or shards might've come from. Um, And those are spread across the swamp in a way that suggests uh, widespread and very well-organized trade networks. Um, So the glass would be, I mean, in glass, when you're, when you're in a swamp without any sort of, you know, tools, you use what you can, and glass is really useful. Um, Glass, rocks that might be brought in, Native American artifacts, um, certain parts of the swamp were rich in glass, for instance. Certain parts of the swamp were rich in deposits of Native American artifacts that had been lost. Um, Everybody needed access to both, and certain parts of the swamp um, were, had, you know, the ability to grow corn or, you know, other crops on a much larger scale, and by trading with each other, there's this inter-swamp Trade network that that kept everybody afloat, so they they didn't necessarily you know share communities together, um, and not all maroons probably even they didn't know how many other maroons were in the swamp, and they probably didn't know the extent of all the other communities, um, but they were certainly aware that they were not alone in the swamp, and their communication networks were were certainly there.
0: how much um, more research is going to be done with the ground penetrating radar and the LIDAR? Is there anything else going on with this?
1: There, well, um, the archaeologist who was the director of the Dismal Swamp Landscape Study published his work in um, 2014. Um, and then has, while keeping this in- Dismal Swamp Research kind of to the side, always kind of coming back to it from time to time, he's moved on to other projects. Um, the the purpose of the archaeological work was really not to exhaustively excavate the swamp but it was just to prove that you know what we thought always was the case really happened um so the the sum total of, of uh, area in the swamp that's been excavated has probably been less than 50 square meters but they've been able to find corners of structures um all sorts of things that that fill in the gaps of the documentary record to help us know exactly as close as we can to, to, knowing what was going on. Um, the LIDAR is, was, and is, uh, particularly useful in determining where the higher spots in the swamp are. I mean, most of the swamp has still not really been accurately surveyed. Um, and where there's a big, you know, a, a 10 acre island that's maybe five or six feet above the water level, the swamp level, based on what we've already determined, you can be fairly certain that people lived on that island. So there are, there are, probably of the maroon communities that existed in the swamp have not been excavated. Um, We know they were there, but the archaeologists, you know, they've done what they've done, and they've accomplished what they wanted to accomplish, and it was never to really pull every artifact out of the ground and be able to answer all the questions. Um, It also gets tricky, too, because where the the most excavation has happened, um, there's also a pretty large island adjacent to it that hasn't really been touched. The question of where did maroons bury their dead comes up a lot and um, when you come across a a a set of bones or a human body in the course of archaeological uh, excavation everything stops you have to there's a ton of red tape that comes into it so um, the archaeologists have purposefully tried to stay away from areas that they think might actually contain human remains Um, the ground penetrating radar is really useful once you've identified the higher higher elevation points of the swamp of using that to try to figure out what parts of the ground have been most used by humans. Um, you can find trails where, um, you know, people walked very often. You can find where, where activity, human activity was the highest. And you can assume from those readings that there must've been, um, a community or a village there. Um, the Island that was most thoroughly excavated, um, in a lot of ways kind of tells us all we need to know about the swamp because there is evidence of human habitation on that island all the way down to the elevations of the island that would not even have been dry all the time. So that island was, was occupied, you know, packed solid with people to the maximum capacity. And if that was the case, they wouldn't have packed it to that capacity if there were other places that were still vacant. So we can assume that, you know, this 10 acre island over here must have been at the same time as, you know, as uh, as solidly populated as other places because of the one that we know people were living in the mud because there was no other room to build a house or to live. And that must have been the case that, you know, if if it was that bad, the other islands must have been as as heavily populated, too. Um, And it's the sort of thing that, you know, we welcome any sort of new technology that can make this job easier. Um, the amount of research I was able to do online during the uh, the COVID lockdown was just amazing. And, and people 10, 20 years ago wouldn't have had access to the same things. The archaeology is the same exact way. Um, being able to, to learn through ground-penetrating radar what's underneath the ground without digging before saves a lot of time, saves a lot of expense. Um, so all of these technological advancements have have really made it possible to tell this story in a much fuller way than would have been otherwise. Do
0: you have a question, sir? Um, So I've read in a couple of places that um, uh, sea captains or or ships crews used to come to the swamp uh, to collect drinking water for the ships because Mm -hmm. of the tannin in the water, preserved it. It didn't go off in the ship's casks. So are you aware or did you find any evidence of, of interactions between uh, maroons and the ship's crews, maybe trade or, or maybe maybe crew were recruited <laughs> from them or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, so
1: the, dismal, the water in the Great Dismal Swamp is a very, very dark amber color. It's a, uh, it's a peat swamp. So that water just sort of steeping in the peat is, it, <laughs> there's a, um, a story that I read from the late 1800s mm-hmm. and there, was a, there used to be a hotel on the border between North Carolina and Virginia on the canal Called the um, Halfway House Hotel, and um, there was a bar. And there was a, a guy that came in there from the canal. He got off his boat, went into the bar, and there was a uh, there were two pitchers on the bar. One was of clear liquid, and one was a brown liquid. And he was going to mix himself a drink. And he assumed that the brown liquid was um, was alcohol, and the white liquid was <laughs> um, was water. And he got thoroughly drunk because, in fact, the brown liquid was water, and the white was moonshine. <laughs> and he had no idea, but but the the water itself was like you said it was um, the swamp was highly acidic, and the water um, would inhibit the growth of bacteria. So these ships that would go off for long journeys, they would come and fill up their barrels with dismal swamp water because it would be preserved for for long amounts of time. Um, that is, a kind of an aside. The fact that the swamp is so acidic means that very few um, non very few organic artifacts are able to be collected from these archaeological digs. Um, there's a, a very small section in the, um, the Smithsonian African American Museum that has some of the artifacts that we found in the swamp, um, and they're all very small, I mean, very, very small, and they were recycled down to disappearance because they were so hard to come by, but that was because of the acidity of the water. Um, there were probably interactions with these ship captains at the um, the outskirts of the Dismal Swamp. I mean. I haven't come across any instances where this happened um, because the captains, I, I don't, I didn't go into their records to try to do the research and the maroons didn't keep, you know, they keep journals. Um, but there's legends that that pirates would would go up into the dismal swamp to try to get some water. And that's a fascinating story to imagine pirates coming into contact with the maroons. and um, But there were later on in the 19th century, um, there were. Captains of ships from uh, Northeastern ports, abolitionists who um, would take on fugitive slaves very often from the dismal swamp. And um, there was one in particular that was known from time to time to actually take his, his smaller ship or his boat up into the swamp um, and pick up people in prearranged meetups. <laughs> um, it didn't happen a lot because that sort of thing was highly visible and very dangerous. but. Um, the knowledge that they were there was everybody knew the dismal swamp was full of fugitive slaves. Um, the people that owned the slaves didn't dare go in to try to claim them back, but abolitionists from time to time would venture into the swamp to try to assist them on to a different type of freedom in the North. And that, that sometimes happened too. Um, the, uh, the dismal swamp canal becomes a, a pretty bustling thoroughfare through the swamp. And there are some instances where um, people who are, you know, have a barge and are floating corn or whatever down the, the canal Um, see some maroons or are attacked sometimes sometimes by maroons. So um, it happened. There's definitely that sort of interaction. But um, as far as, um, you know, the the ships that took on the water, I haven't come across too many sources that suggest that. And I think we have time for one more question here. Uh, Did you speak with any descendants from maroons from the Dismal Swap in your research? Um, a few. We had a, a team that was part of the Dizzle Swan Landscape Study that went out in the community and tried to talk with descendant communities. Um, it's always an important part of any project that when you undertake it like this, you want to try to you want to try to honor the descendants of the Maroons themselves. But I mean, very often they have the, the family histories that have the, the stories. Um, and for whatever reason, there's there's not a lot of of that oral history that's accessible. Um, or it depends on relationships that are going to take a lot more time to develop. Um, the A lot of the the people that lived in the swamp came out and um, what I guess you could maybe even call like a dismal swamp diaspora spread out all over, not just Virginia, North Carolina, but all across the country. A lot ended up in um, New England. Some ended up in Canada. Others ended up um, going back to where they had been enslaved. Um, tracking them down is difficult difficult, if not impossible. There's a couple of people that I've been able to find in the census uh, in the late 19th century, um, but the family lines kind of disappear and make it very difficult to to get to those direct descendants. Um, There there are a couple that are are notable exceptions. Um, The the family of Moses Grandy, who was a um, a captain on the dismal Swamp Canal and who had um, worked in digging of the canals, was enslaved, uh, eventually made it to New England, but um, that family is very active in getting the, the swamp history told. Um, but others are, are, are reluctant to talk about it um, for whatever reasons. A lot of it has to do with, with, with lingering senses of, of shame between being connected to this, this slave story, um, and, and getting past that is, is a bit of an obstacle. The language people use, I think, is important a lot of times. I mean, when I talk about um, the, the Maroons, they are um, formerly enslaved people, not former slaves, um, and, and when I'm talking about slaves... Or what people might refer to as slaves, I say enslaved people because that signifies something that's being done to them, not something that's sort of being accepted passively. Um, slave owners are enslavers. Uh, plantations are uh, slave labor camps. I mean, kind of taking the the um, pulling the the curtain back a little bit and and saying, calling things what they were. I think um, historians and scholars that are going to continue to take this story and do more research are gonna they're going to be able to, I think, access. The communities that um, either hadn't known that they had this in their family past um, because of, of you know books like mine or the, the archaeologist that published this before, Daniel Sayers. Um, there are a few that are still doing research on the Dismal Swamp, and I know that part of their research plan is to go out and, and try to get as much information as they can from the Senate communities. All right. Well, I think that uh, concludes our question and answer time. Um, so again, thank you to uh, Brent. Thank you very much. <laughs> and um, I, uh, we welcome you to uh, meet Brent in the lobby, where I believe he will be signing some books if you'd like to purchase one.